0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or Product Disclosure Statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast welcomes back Drew Meredith CFP, a financial advisor and friend from Waddle Partners based out of Melbourne. This is a laid-back episode in which Drew and I talk about eight listed stocks which reported results in the past month. Basically, this episode is a break from our usual in-depth philosophical conversations and focuses on companies. You'll notice Drew and I are very relaxed. It may come as little surprise, but our most popular episodes are those which include actionable investment research or ideas. These more laid-back episodes are fun to record and help us provide you with some easy listening but actionable ideas. I'll be back with a longer form interview next week, but if you enjoy these types of episodes, please let me know. Leave me a review on iTunes if you want me to do more of these, or email me if you don't particularly like them. I'd love to hear from you either way. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Drew Meredith from Model Partners, welcome back to our reporting season roundup, mate. Thanks, mate. a uh, long 12 months,
1: I think, for everyone.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time between drinks, right? Like we, last year, we were doing this every week during reporting season, and uh, this time we just missed it. We just were just <laughs> so busy. So um, it's good to just do one roundup. We're going to bring kind of our two best and worst. Um, I think worst is a bit harsh for some of the companies that I'm talking about. They just didn't meet expectations, we'll say. So... Um, I'm going to be focusing on small caps. I've got one large cap US tech stock in here. You've got um, mid and large cap Aussie, which is, is good for a variety. So um, yeah, like I said, last year we were doing these weekly. We just thought we'd jump on the, the mic and talk about what we like doing. Um, for those who don't know, Drew's been on the podcast before, the Australian Investors Podcast. He's spoken um, to me many times on on our YouTube channel. And you're a financial advisor at Waddle Partners, uh, how's all that going, mate?
1: Uh, probably busiest we've ever been, so it's great. Mm. Had a strong twenty twenty. Mm. Um, got some ideas and asset allocation calls right during the year, so yeah, not much break for us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then
1: is that when you say so busy, do you just mean more like more clients coming on board as well, or? Yeah, so we've had quite a quite a bit of interest in new clients coming on uh, in the last quarter of twenty twenty, mm. um, and growing team. I think two new staff on as well, so.
0: Yeah, cool. That's great, mate. It's always good to good to hear because, um, you know, seeing the office, it just seems to be expanding every day and I just don't know <laughs> who's, wait, what, what are you doing? And I just see so many people walking around and it's just, I mean, credit to you for, for putting in a good performance for your clients last year. Um, before we get into the companies, obviously, this is... Um, anything that Drew and I say in this podcast is limited to general financial advice only. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before you act on any of the information, because we haven't taken into account your needs, goals, or objectives. Also worth noting is that Drew or I may own shares in some of these companies. Um, We may have formal recommendations for or against. So again, don't act solely on the information you hear or watch if you're watching this on youtube today um, you can find more information by going to the t's and c's and financial services guides on our respective websites so drew um let's let's start off on a on a negative note it's um it's a video about the best and worst um sometimes the the worst of the juicy ones so why don't you give us one straight off the top what what is one of your disappointing results from reporting season
1: it wasn't necessarily the report that was disappointing, but the obviously the share price reaction for me was Seek Limited. So, you know, one mm. of the rare, really good Australian growth companies does job ads. Um, it was a stock we, we bought for most clients back in April last year at all-time or not all-time lows, but something like $14 or $15. Uh, Mm. somehow it went from there to an all-time high within about six months despite it being a very difficult job market Mm. so I think it was always going to disappoint a bit when they reported Um, but probably the most interesting part about it was they sold their uh, major part of their share in Xiaoping I think Mm -hmm. is the best way to pronounce it uh, which is a Chinese job ads company Become a significant part of their overall business in Australia. Some analysts are saying it was sold at a potentially lower multiple than what the company was itself was trading at, which is a kind of a a, a weird situation. Mm. And the share price has fallen off by about uh, I think 20% after that. Uh, at the same time, uh, CEO Andrew Bassett stepped down to move over. To the investments division. So Seek has its core job ads and education businesses, and then it also makes venture capital investments, which is where Xiaoping actually came from. Uh, so he's moving over to run that venture capital business. And I think uh, I was talking to someone else recently, it's quite common to have these, you know, investment companies within other companies in Asia and in the US, you know, Warren Buffett, all these kind of uh, groups. But in Australia, I think almost dividend focus has meant that um, People don't necessarily see the value as much. Mm. You know, if they want to buy, do venture capital, they'd probably try and buy a venture capital fund rather than invest through Seek. So I think that's part of the reason it fell off so much. Um, but generally, profit only fell eight percent, and revenue was only down seven percent uh, on the previous year for the for the half. So not a bad report. Just more the reaction and mm. major events happening there.
0: Yeah, because I know I know you guys like this for a while, but you sold. Did you sell shares not so long ago?
1: Yeah, we sold it, uh, I think it was almost an 80% gain. So around $26 or $27, I think we recommended selling it on the basis that uh, that was around the time a short seller's report came out about some potential issues in their Chinese business. Um, Was that around, sorry, Drew, was that around, you know, just fake job ads effectively? Was that what it was? Yeah, exactly.
0: I remember reading something, I just can't find it right now. So I was a bit, yeah, okay.
1: That's what, so- yeah, we think it's a—it's uh, always been a good business compounding growth, but when you see a major change like this, it kind of resets expectations, I think.
0: Mm. Mm. And I think, it, am I mistaken, I could be completely off the mark, probably should have researched this before I came on, Drew, but um, the Bassett family, I think they do have investments in venture capital or they have experience in that market anyway, right?
1: Yeah, I think his brother uh, run SquarePeg. So it's probably the yeah. most well-known venture capital group in Australia, but that's a, mm-hmm. yes, completely separate venture capital business. Yeah. Um, and I think with Seek, their focus is on backing similar advertising and education based plays, whereas SquarePeg would be much broader. Yeah. Um, so that's Andrew, is it Seek? And Paul, is it?
0: Yeah, I think that Square maybe, Peg, I think. yeah, we've probably got that wrong. Someone will correct us, but yeah. <laughs> probably <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, really interesting. Okay. So, yeah, it's, this is a, a business that's been su- a success for so long. Um, so it's interesting business. It's not one that I own. Um, just happy to watch this one from the sidelines. So for me, I'll, I'll start off with I'm going to start off with the smallest company on our list today, which is EnviroSuite. Um, ASX ticket code EVS. Do you know EnviroSuite? Not well. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, you, yeah, I mean, it's a small cap company. Not many people know it too well. But basically, EnviroSuite, as the name might suggest, it does uh, technology software primarily for um, organizations and groups like asset owners that need to consider the environment. So things like water pollution, noise pollution, air pollution, all those different types of things. It's kind of that Pretty triple cool.
1: like your green warrior investment.
0: That's what we're back to, Matt. Yeah. That, that famous phrase, green warrior. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it basically it, it's in this kind of sweet spot of software that's Looking after the environment, right? And companies now need what we call a social license to print money effectively. So, you know, if you have um, an energy facility, like a uh, some sort of industrial facility that needs to monitor our air pollution or noise pollution, you would get some sensors put on, and um, you know, EnviroSuite could help you um, manage that. So they would come in and consult. They would put in the the devices. They wouldn't make them necessarily themselves, or if they do, they would kind of outsource that anyhow. But they, their, soft, their software effectively provides the platform for you to integrate all those different sensors and to consider them in one kind of dashboard. Um, the results, um, for context on EnviroSuite, they actually made a, a kind of like a reverse takeover. They acquired a business that was much larger than their own. And that business brought with it uh, many, many employees from right across the world. And so they had to kind of do this complicated restructure and for investors looking at the numbers what makes this particularly difficult is that you know i'll give you i'll give you an example right so what we had to adjust revenue and it was up 17% but we don't know how like it's very hard to know 23 million dollars of adjusted revenue up 17% but the comparable period includes 4 months of revenue from EMS and it's very difficult to know how much of that was coming from EMS simply because the deals that it sh- strikes are They're not as transparent as kind of like a pure play SaaS business. Um, So it was pretty hard to decipher, you know, what's organic revenue, what was required, how much of that organic revenue is new
1: revenue. Um, What's interesting... There's a problem getting a read on these lower, you know, these kind of acquiring roll-up almost businesses in fragmented industries.
0: That's it. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Like we we kind of have to take management's word for it a bit. Um, And one of the things that... Um, came about during the pretty much it it came about as the results were being dropped. Was that the CEO is stepping back? Um, he'd been with the company for two different stints, I think it was a period of eight years. And the COO is taking over, Jason Cooper, who started in July last year. Um, and one of the interesting things is that if this is a business with staff in many different countries um, doing many different things, is that if you started as um, chief operating officer in July last year, chances are you haven't met many of the employees that have been part of this because you haven't been able to travel. You know, there's, yeah. there's a, it's, it's not an easy thing for even a, a COO or a new CEO to kind of get in and, and get a handle on quickly. So that kind of spooked the market. Um, and one of the things that spooked me drew, and I'm not sure if you've seen this before, but the CEO salary um, has a base salary, but then um effectively, all of the long-term incentives are based purely on share price. Yeah. And I don't need to explain to you, but for those people who are listening along at home, um, what that effectively means is that it can encourage behavior which is, um, you know, aimed purely at getting the share price up. So you could go out- Short term. Yeah. You could go out and acquire revenue. You could make acquisitions. So you become, build your empire if you like. As Charlie Monk says, show me where I'm going to die and I won't go there. This is a, um, I mean, incentive structures in small cap land are very unusual at the best of times. <laughs> <laughs> so, I call uh, it the Wild
1: West. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, there you go. Yeah, and that's that can be when it's slack, like, right? So, um, the, the the problem that I've, I've we have with what it, this kind of latest, um, I guess, not change in tax because it's not a change in tax, but just the business in general is that it has a long history of um, issuing shares. So I was looking um, recently and in just in the last few years, you know, we've seen um, the the, the weighted average number of shares outstanding rise to over 600 million. And for context in 2015, there was just over a hundred. And so, you know, it's just kind of in this steady upwards trajectory and it's like um, that dilution that you just don't see every day. Um, It kind of just eats away at your returns over time. So, I mean, it was, it was a pretty hard-to-see result. Management said that a fair bit of the revenue, 85%, is recurring and less than 0.5% of revenue comes from China and is mostly non-recurring. And that's important because there were a few issues with that during the period. Um, if I'm being more positive, costs of revenue kind of flatline, so we're starting to see more
1: margin. Yeah. Um, so they're extracting something from the acquisition. It's yeah. not um, just yeah. bumping up revenue.
0: No, that's it. You know, they, they took some costs out from redundancies. Um, there were some co- one-off costs in there for acquisitions. And so margins are going to go higher, I believe, but it's just a business that is quite hard to get a handle on. And um, I think that's what's holding institutional money, um, you know, on the sidelines as well. I think we really need to see that execution with wider margins and free cash flow, um, which it still hasn't achieved yet. So that's Envira Suite ASX ticket code, EVS. We have it as a recommendation. Um, it's a speculative company, so keep that in mind.
1: Um, yeah, one to watch for sure. I think it's an interesting comment around cost-cutting is redundancies. It was kind of, you know, probably the theme of reporting season was cost-cutting and we kept our cost low. But mm. you've got to look closely at what it is. Are they cutting staff that they then will need to re-employ at some stage? Are they mm. running down inventory? And then they, you know, have to eventually pop pick inventory back up because there's different ways to keep your costs low. Um, that was some of the things I was looking at.
0: Yeah, it is, and that's a fair point, right? Like, I I think that these would, I think these, maybe these redundancies would have happened even if COVID wasn't a factor, because bringing these two businesses together, there were certain synergies that could be had. Um, So perhaps this was it. But it's just being mindful going forward. Um, The business, the business, in my opinion, needs clear vision and strategy, and it needs to articulate that to the market before it's going to attract that institutional money. So. Interesting business. One for the watch list for a lot of people. So that's my number one. Um, how about your number two? We'll go with uh, the worst before we get to the best, Drew.
1: It's not one we've held or probably would ever hold, um, which is A2 Milk. Uh, had a shocker. It was kind of a, you could kind of see it coming. Um, I think it was their second downgrade in a row, not yep. their third. They say downgrades come in threes. Um, A2 Milk makes special special milk. Uh, they say it, feels better the um it only has the a2 protein um I've, I've tried to understand it but gave up after a while uh and a massive part something like 48 percent of their sales go into china in various ways some of it's through you know normal um shipping and some of it through this Daigo channel mm. um which is more fragmented, I guess. Uh, So clearly with travel restricted people, you know, buying and taking and selling uh, infant formula and these sort of things in China was, was, was impacted. Profit fell 35%. Sales were down 16%. uh, And the companies, I think trying to readjust their, their approach to the Chinese market. I kind of see it as this similar to treasury wine. I, I understand as a business owner, you know, they see an opportunity in China and a, quickly becomes massive and mo- the biggest part of their business. Uh, but it just shows you again, the, you know, 48% of your income coming from one country. Uh, it, it's obviously very dangerous um, proposition. Mm. You need, you need enough. You need a significant diversification, I think. Mm. So one you, you follow or it's, it's
0: really interesting because um I've owned Bub's shares in the past. Um, It was probably one, it's an investment that for our Rask Invest service, um, it's the one that I regret the most because um, I totally under, I guess the quality just wasn't there. I underappreciated the risks associated with China as well. doing, Doing business in China, we had an update called Doing Dairy in China and we profiled the major milk companies, including A2. And I'm just looking at it now, you can't see it on my screen, but One of our analysts looked at it and it had this kind of flow chart with all of the the state backed or related enterprises that kind of go into this web. And then you just see this purple circle where A2 Milk sits. And it kind of sits in between manufacturers, um, you know, with Sinlate Milk, Fonterra. And then it's got you know, relationships with this China state farm holdings in Shanghai, and then that's 100% owned by this China National Agriculture Development Group, which is 100% owned by the state-owned asset supervision and administration commission. And it's just, it's, this whole web just goes around and around, right?
1: Yeah. So it's like a middleman for, not a middleman, but, you know, they're pulling in from, dairy, from uh, dairy owners and then yeah, branding and shipping off somewhere else.
0: And the, the scary, this I think the precarious thing is that, I didn't. I underestimated how complex that web was, yeah. and what effectively had to go right for them to just provide, you know, sales straight into China. And um, then you add in COVID, where that Daigu channel isn't as, you know, efficient. Yeah. And it's and it's it's like you said, the kind of the writing was on the wall. One of the things that this is kind of given me pause for thought is also their, you know, the Mature Valley. Um, that was that's an interesting deal if you trace back kind of who that's owned by, um, <laughs> and then if you if you kind of you look at like what a two milk was in the past is that it was great because it was a capital light business like you said it just kind of slaps the a two milk
1: like label that, on yeah label on it and then it ships it off.
0: yeah and then I end up paying double for it in the in the supermarket as well I've got to be honest I've got some in the fridge, um, and. You know it's a great business model but then if you think of the external influences on that business, I think it's a higher risk than what many people were appreciating there will come a time to buy it if you're yeah. so inclined but yeah it's it's just going with your eyes wide open so Drew
1: have you ever owned a milk? no I haven't it kind of for me it re- and Treasury wine last year that had a similar issue with Chinese government this wasn't a government issue but um, kind of reiterates it's so easy to invest directly into China or America now so it kind of relying on companies as a proxy, like mm. Australian companies for a proxy. I don't think we need to do that anymore. Um, that said, it it's has its own merits at some stage. It's a, ultimately it's a commodity company that has great branding. Yep. Um, you know, that brand would be an Australian success story. Maybe it's New Zealand. We've stolen yep. that. We'll claim it if it's doing well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's great branding, uh, but a commodity company. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's, it it's
0: a, it's a interesting one because you have to understand the competitive position and the competitive advantage of any business. Um, and then you also need to know your limitations as an analyst, I think. You know, you need to know what you can and can't know. Um, and how much of those things that you can't know you're willing to to go along with. Um yeah. and that's where you get your uncertainty and you you make your risk ratings for evaluation. And for us, we struggled to get a valuation. This was before the result, struggle struggled to get a valuation above ten dollars if you're being more conservative as we were. So it's eight dollars eighty eight now. I'm just looking at it. Um on on google um so maybe there's a time and a price for it um who knows maybe it's one again one for the watch list so that's a good one so my number two and this is going to come as a bit of a shock to people it's more it's not worst is um you know i only really tend to follow companies that we have kind of in our purview for our membership services i don't really tend to go beyond that Um, and so my focus is quite narrow, but tends to be deeper. That's how I describe it. I look at
1: I look at everything, the ASX 50.
0: Yeah, see, I don't I don't have to. That's why I'm so so tired. (laughs) That's what keeps you busy. That's what you, you keep writing those daily reports. You just cover everything. Yeah, I don't know how you do it, mate. Um, I couldn't do it. Anyway, um, my number two, and it's a company, and the reason why I bring this company up is because I've talked about it on our investors podcast before, and it's a it's a recommendation inside our Rask Invest service, and it's RPM Global ASX ticket code RUL. It's a mining services company. Does um, so? It does software for um, mine development and for you know, asset maintenance. So, imagine you have the big trucks that look like the old Tonka trucks you probably played with as a kid. Um, they're driving around the mine site. As those um, trucks get more sophisticated in terms of you know their you know machine learning, um, their ability to self drive. Um, speak to other assets at the mine site. Um, RPM Global's software effectively provides the backbone and the, the tools to connect all of those systems, those disparate systems together, and it integrates with the likes of SAP. So it kind of creates this um, all-in-one uh, software suite and dashboard for for its um, users who are mining clients, etc. cetera.
1: Um, would love it. His, uh... Oh. Obsessed with diggers and yeah, yeah, just and, and tractors
0: and tell him all about RPM and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get even more excited. Um, so during the during the recent half year, reported revenue down 20 percent to 32 and a half million. Um, the thing about RPM and I've articulated this before is that it's transitioning from pure consultancy to software, and that transition is still underway under CEO Richard Matthews. So subscription revenue for software jumped 65. percent but it's small. It's a smaller amount, six point four million um, total contract value sold during the half was fourteen point five million. Um, from our calculations, that was down from twenty one point five last period, uh, comparative period. Um, but the, as always with these uh, subscriptions business businesses, is um, it's interesting to note how much of the revenue is incurred in a certain period when it is sold. So RPM sold 14 and a half million but it in, it only generated revenue of 0.8 million from those contracts. So there's still it's just banking that revenue and that pushes up the total contracted value um, of those subscriptions going forward. Um, if I just jump ahead, there were the business turned a profit but it relied on some JobKeeper subsidies and the business struggled to, you know, to to do maintenance on the software and to get the consultants out to mine sites. And a lot of the mining companies were a bit reluctant. You know, the knee jerk reaction for most miners I would imagine is Let's just pull back on new spending until we know what we can and can't do with COVID. Um, And if I just jump to the bottom, um, RPM still has a really strong balance sheet. It's got $32.8 million of cash and no debt. The business now has lower costs as a result of COVID. Um, It's still growing quickly. And from the first seven weeks of the third quarter, it looked like it was off to a very strong start. So I'm still very positive on the company for the long term. It was just a a hiccup. And it reminded me how cyclical that advisory side of the business is, coupled with um, you know that COVID um, impact. Not so it's, a,
1: like a, hmm? so it's like a capital light uh, mining services company. That's exactly, and it's right. transitioning more yeah. towards the software and away from the consulting side. Like Wally Parsons and Oracle had shockers because everyone was stopping, as you said, their capex. Yeah. But that's you know they have much bigger teams. They operate and build projects. They well, need a lot more capital. So that's it. Um, it's not not unlike the rest of the, what's happening in the industry, it sounds like. So it's
0: That's it, yeah. And over time, I believe RPM is going to become more valuable for every incremental dollar of revenue it brings in. So, you know, in three or four years, the multiple that we apply to a business that has, that relies, that can, is effectively in the OPEX budget, not in the CAPEX budget, um, you know, this business is going to be more annuity-like. It's going to be valued accordingly. So there's kind of that two-pronged, um, I guess, thesis here, which is that the business is getting better but investors would be willing to pay more for it in time too. Um, one thing that's really interesting about RPM, which it kind of it goes against some of the other mining services companies is that it um, it has continued to invest significantly in R&D. When Richard yeah. Matthews took over in, I think it was 2012, 2013, he just invested heavily in tech. His background is ERP systems, um, and that effectively put him where they are today that six or seven-year spending cycle, like consistently spending on really good engineers, really good um, developers, and just growing that uh, subscriptions from the software. And it's good to see them still doing that today. Um, even through COVID, they're spending and just building a better product for their customers. So I really like the business. It was just a hiccup in the road. Yeah. So let's get more positive, Drew.
1: Positive. So i super positive. I'm going to give you a bit of a... What do you call it? Uh, who's this company? So <laughs> okay. they've a uh, bit of a bit of a game to make it a bit more fun. So if I told you there was a company that had double-digit sales increases, was involved in e-commerce and batteries oh. and the battery supply chain, <laughs> and they increased their dividend dividend by 17%, what would you say? I'd say it's Buzzword Limited. Is that like the perfect company? <laughs>
0: No, I think I know the answer to this one because I think you mentioned it. So, um, But I guess listeners are playing along at home. Double-digit growth, e-commerce, batteries, revenue growing, a dividend up.
1: It's um, a perfect storm.
0: Yeah, what is this
1: mysterious company? This unicorn. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's, you know, as, as we know, I focus on the large cap, so it's West Farmers. Um, mm-hmm. Held coals for quite a few years, sold coals last year, but it's just had it. you know, Powered on through 2020, um, reported sales growth of 16.5% to something like 17 billion for mm. the second half of 2020. And if, if for everyone that doesn't know, they own Bun- the Bunnings franchise, which is about 60% of their profit, Officeworks, Kmart. They bought Catch Group, so Catch mm. the Day, all these cheap deals that you can get, 100% online sales. And they've also expanded into buying, uh, I think it's the Mount Holland, Mount Holland lithium mine in WA. So they've kind of made this decision to pivot. They've always been seen as a conglomerate. They just became a Bunnings dominated conglomerate um, mm. uh, after selling off coals last year. Um, I've personally, we've held them at different times. We, we hold them at the moment within client portfolios um, or we've recommended them. Uh, it's just a company that seems to have great, management in terms of making mm. good investment decisions. They don't always look great initially, um, but catch group's the perfect example. I think they paid 200 million for it and it's potentially worth three or four times that already.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's a fascinating business, isn't it? It's pretty much that old school conglomerate um, uh, It's much, you know, people probably have it now in a similar bucket to soul parts, but um, this is, I guess it's everywhere around us in, in retail you know, markets, yeah. they dominate. Um, the industrials business has probably been long under, misunderstood by investors too, right? Like people kind of forget that because it has Bunnings, because it has Office Works, They kind of forget about what it's doing in mining, what it's doing in industrial safety, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a WA business, so I think every WA business has to have some uh, mining, I- <laughs> mining <laughs> assets. So I think they were well, they were renting. I don't know. I don't, I don't pay that much attention to that part either. But it's like some mining services and some yeah. uh, chemical. I think yeah. some chemical production. Yep. Um, but my what I was most impressed by was the fact that last year I was probably concerned. I think we actually bought it last year. I was getting concerned that. Uh, you know, Bunnings office works were getting too big. You know, their sales growth was going to slow down. Mm. Bunnings was getting lazy. Uh, And then COVID kind of forced them. If you've ever tried to buy something online at Bunnings, they just didn't let it. But in COVID, they were forced to go online. And for a company that's well-managed and organized, probably JB Hi-Fi is similar. uh, If you're actually selling more of your products online and you've got these massive car parks where you can easily do click and collect, well, your margins can actually expand. So you, you can make more profit from... Same level of revenue, and pretty much every business they had saw margins expand um, in the second half of 2020. Which, given I think their retail or their online sales were only 1.4 billion in total, so less than 10% mm. uh, of total sales. Um, there's mass. There's still massive opportunity mm. for the company there.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I was pretty skeptical of that catch group thing. To be honest, I'm not the type of person that goes on those those sites anyhow. But I was a bit skeptical, but um, I can't remember, was it Richard Goida? Is that what his yeah. Name? yeah, previously he said about five years ago that the biggest threat West Farmers faces is online and in particular Amazon. So it's good to see them executing um, and just actually you know, delivering that online experience. I've got to say, when I was going through Officeworks, uh, through Bunnings during COVID, it was the hardest thing in the world to just process mortar. I wanted like 30 things, to keep in mind, but the thing kept crashing. And and whatever, but by the end of COVID here in Victoria, um, the experience was so much more seamless. It was yep. online checkout, bang, it's there. You know, next day you've got it. You pop
1: your boot, they put it in the car for you. Yep. It was yeah,
0: yeah. And so that's yeah, fascinating that a big company can still have that focus on innovation, and invest, um, and I think that's the, the the strategic advantage of these types of businesses that have huge pools of capital. They've got a cash generating business in Bunnings. Um, and they can just afford to invest um, appropriately outside of that and pay a dividend. So That's, interesting. Yeah. interesting. They've
1: got about 10 billion uh, in borrowing capacity at the moment. So, yeah, right. Um, I've potential for more acquisitions.
0: I've heard rumors of them approaching some other listed companies. Um, well,
1: I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. Apparently, Virgin was one, but luckily, they didn't do that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's what it's the. What's the uh, the Richard Branson quote? Um, if you want to become a millionaire, start as a billionaire and buy an airline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my my company that I mentioned quickly is EML Payments. Uh, it's, it's the company I bought shares in most recently. So it's ASX EML. Um, it's basically a fintech to fintechs is how people describe it when they don't know exactly what it does. So it um, it, it it has multiple arms to its business, but you can think about it as an enabler for payments with many of these fintech businesses. Um, if you think of some, you know, uh, neo banks, you can, you might imagine that email might be behind the behind the scenes powering some of that um, integration and some of that, that um, payment gateway, if you
1: like. It's like gift cards and then yeah, ban- and it's, banking as a service.
0: That's effectively. Yeah. And yeah. so then we have the gifts and incentive side of the business and a big part of EML's business depends on malls in the USA. Malls being the place where COVID um, seems to hang around and people don't want to go. So it was there was a lot of negative sentiment um, baked into what the market had expected. Um, and when they reported uh, in February, they came out and said, you know, Christmas was actually pretty good for us. So, keep, you know, we, yes, we have a lot of gift cards. Yes, we're exposed to malls. But it was actually a really good period for us because 40% of the gross deposit volume um, that goes onto those those gift cards actually occurs in the Christmas period. So people were like, "Well, we're just going to wait and see," and that's the kind of the approach that we took. We had this kind of we had this recommendation, but we said, "You know, we don't expect much in the short term." But then it came out and said, "You know, we've actually done pretty well. Organic growth was 25%. So for our general purpose reloadable, which is a different part of its business." Um, it's got the PFS acquisition, which is a huge acquisition. The one thing that people didn't, and I'm in this camp, didn't like about EML was they announced this PFS acquisition out of Ireland, which is this payment processing platform. And they paid a big multiple for it and then COVID hit and then everyone thought there was going to be a cash squeeze on EML. And then EML went back to them and negotiated terms and got a better deal and pushed the deal through. So it actually worked out in EML's favor. Uh, and one of the things, Drew, I don't know if you've ever had a gift card that That's all met- I
1: got for Christmas. Oh, you got,
0: yeah. Have you ever had a gift card where you haven't spent the full amount? No. Nah. Okay, so you and make the most of it. And yeah. more, Yeah. Well, with um, EML, they actually benefit when people don't spend the gift yeah. card. So they have this breakage revenue. And one of the kind of natural hedges for them was that during Christmas, people weren't going to malls to buy gift cards, or so we thought, but they also weren't able to spend them. So, so they were expiring and AML would benefit from this, what they call breakage revenue. Um, yeah, and so that was an interesting business. It also has a lot of cash on its balance sheet because it has um, customer deposits. So it could actually be an indirect beneficiary from rising interest rates if that ever happens. Um, innovative business, good short-term results. Um, I like it. Good one. Uh, you're lucky last so you're my lucky last i'll keep short on this one we said we're going
1: to do four minutes each didn't we yeah um (laughs) 14 minutes (laughs) an hour later (laughs) uh so the the big one for me is sticking with large caps it probably wasn't the profit that was so good it was the announcement after the profit which was macquarie group um another one similar to west farmers that we wanted to own forever but we recommended last year um it's something like 70 or 80 bucks it's up to one hundred and fifty or something now (laughs) um massive high quality company. They do banking, they do asset management, like infrastructure uh, and they do capital markets as in every other capital raising you've seen. Macquarie yep. is helping, helping do that and taking a fee on the way through. And that probably most importantly, they do a lot of hedging. So if you're an energy company that is worried about the future movement of pri- energy prices, or oil prices, Macquarie will enter contracts or prepare contracts that help you reduce Hedge that risk, so you know what price you're going to receive. <laughs> we saw some gold miners, you know, lost money because yep. they hedged when the gold price went up, and I'm sure a lot of oil companies would have liked to have hedged the other the other way. Um, not nothing stunning. Basically, they uh, said profit will be the same as last year. But then, post that, I was talking to an analyst last week who said that uh, they upgraded their profit two weeks later by five to ten percent. Uh, on 2020 level. So that's mm-hmm. good growth. It's almost double digit growth. Almost primarily because of their energy assets in the US, uh, energy I you know contracts in the US mm-hmm. that uh, helped profit uh, when the Texas freeze kind of swept through. Um, so they didn't necessarily profit from you know people being unable to you know <laughs> have heating. Uh, but as someone explained it to me they had options over the passing of gas through pipelines in different parts of america that then had to be redirected towards texas hmm. uh, and you know the demand for that for those pipelines obviously significantly increased and they made significant gains on the options they held over those um i my understanding or my hmm. someone explained it to me so uh, interesting true how do
0: you analyze as a investor how do you like Are there certain key metrics you look for with a a, a bank like Macquarie Group? I've often struggled because it's kind of half, well, most investment bank, part retail bank. And I kind of have have this lens for retail banks, but not so much one that fits for investment banks.
1: They've started to help with that, to be honest. So they split it into annuity-like businesses and then into... You know, market facing. So obviously, mm. that energy but energy business is market facing. Uh, annuity like is their asset management. So if you think about a Macquarie, uh, you know, Winton's Global Alpha Fund is issued by Macquarie. I think they get paid a fee for offering that investment in in Australia. So that's pretty consistent. It's based on the amount of assets that are in the in the fund, mm. and they've got 550 billion under management in that part of their business. So banking and asset management pretty consistent. You can put a pretty simple multiple on that, as you're saying, combine mm-hmm. an asset management multiple and a bank, traditional bank multiple, but then capital markets, yeah, I don't think you can really predict what those are going to do. So you mm-hmm. have to have maybe a, a fairly conservative view on whether they'll grow. You know, Macquarie Capital did something like a hundred transactions last year in, you know, in the billions and billions, they, they floated NewX, So they own part of yeah, NewX, right. which you probably covered too. Mm-hmm. Um they're very, you know, things like performance fees, like a Magellan or a Platinum, are part of the asset management division. So, those parts are less predictable, but the core bit you can you can get a better idea on. Um, mm. I think that's and why it fell so far as well last year.
0: Yeah, I was just looking just quickly um, in from February last year, went from one hundred and fifty dollars to March uh, eighty, 80 so, bucks. So yeah. yeah, so I mean, if that's your opportunity, you might be able to get in with that more conservative valuation, which doesn't bank in much from the capital markets part of the business yeah cool that's a good one um okay so last one for me is a u.s company i'm going to go large cap from one end of the spectrum to the other which is pinterest i've talked about this on ausbiz recently um pinterest for those of you who don't know is a place where you can go a social media platform where you can go and you can actually feel good about yourself so there's um, something to to note about it it actually is it studies have shown that you know when you go to some of the portals like Instagram or et cetera, you actually leave feeling worse than you went there. (laughs) Um, Pinterest is the opposite of that. So you can go there and you can get inspiration and people see it as a source of happiness. So 91% of people say that it's a, it's a source of happiness for them. And I don't know, have you ever
1: used Pinterest for my wedding? Um, So getting ideas when we got married for like design and all that sort of thing.
0: What Um, a great, what a great time of, in your life, right? So yeah. happiness. It
1: was my go. anniversary on Sunday. So oh, congratulations, Timely. mate! Yeah.
0: yeah, and you can thank Pinterest for that for that making that a success. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's the, that's the investment thesis. No, 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 I joke, mate. Congratulations! And Pinterest is a place where people go for wedding inspiration, primarily for food inspiration, and the one that I use it for, which is renovation inspiration So around the around the house, home decor, um, kitchen benches, etc. If you want, like we want to put in a new servery in our kitchen that goes onto the decking. So you get ideas from Pinterest, which you can then use, you know, as a kind of base for your, your plans and whatever. And so just looking at the numbers that Pinterest reported, I think this was the beginning of Feb, um, global revenue. So they, they break the business out in two sides. There's international and then there's um, US primarily, North America. And um, they make money from advertising. So they've got they've just spent a billion dollars getting a new advertising engine for advertisers to go in the back end, um, and basically global revenue up seventy six percent in the fourth quarter compared to uh, compared to the year ago quarter. Um, but of that seven hundred six million dollars of revenue drew five hundred and eighty two or about sixty seven percent. So two thirds came from the U.S. and one hundred twenty three million came from international. Now the thing about this is. Average revenue per user, even though they were rapidly adding users during COVID, average revenue per user jumped 29% to $1.57. Um, US ARPU um, was around $5.94. So remember that $5.94, it was up 49%. So a big increase in That's great. the average revenue per user. But international ARPU, so people like us here in Australia, the revenue the revenue that Pinterest earns from those uh, from an average user outside the states. It's 35 cents. Um, now, so people look at this and they say, well, yeah, but maybe those are in like developing countries and they're not as valuable, et cetera, et cetera. But that number was actually up 67% during the quarter. And I think that's what really caught investors by surprise is just they're starting to see that global expansion pay off. Pinterest is investing in new teams in uh, Europe and, and and APAC, so we're starting to see the benefit of more big advertisers come into the platform with a better platform to use thanks to that investment in R and D. Um, our our thesis is basically the ARPU from international markets needs to get closer to um, to like comparables like Facebook or
1: um, which will happen Twitter. when you get when you get a sales team on the ground, doesn't it? That's probably it's That's not it. because people aren't using it; it's because it's you, they don't have the sales team yet. They're focused on the US.
0: That's it. And there's there's effectively two sides of this, right? Like you would go to Pinterest and you'd want to, you would probably look at it. This is the really interesting thing is people have purchasing intent when they go to Pinterest. So you would go there and you'd look, Oh, look at that um, new desk. But then you'd like one of our designers, for example, says this all the time. She's a prolific user of the platform. She says, you know, you go on, you want to, you want to buy that desk that you see on Pinterest, but then you realize that was uploaded by someone in Romania four years ago and they don't sell that table. So you're like, well, now what? So Pinterest has often missed a big part of that that pie, um, even though people have intent, they haven't been executing, and I think now they're starting to execute, and I think we'll start to see operating leverage kick in, and it was a good result. So happy days! I'm a happy holder of Pinterest shares. Excellent. Yep. So that's our four, that's our four. I was about to say four each. That's eight eight companies altogether. I don't know how long we've recorded for. Uh, it's been quite a while. I hope you just you've made less it. than an hour. Just less than an hour. See, perfect. Um, Drew. I'm hoping we can do this again sometime soon. i um, hoping to have Jamie on the podcast too. So um, your partner at Waddle Partners. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, how can they do that?
1: Uh, just straight on the email, um, drew at waddlepartners.com. I'm sure it'll be in the notes and yep, mobile phone. My <laughs> phone rings hot. <laughs> I won't put that in the
0: show notes because you definitely will get a fair amount of spam uh, coming your way. Or maybe I should.
1: It's um, but it's, uh, it's all, all good discussions Yeah Um we'll especially sign up to our daily newsletter um,
0: uh, Yes So we run yeah. through yours Yep, yep, so you can do that I'll put links in the show notes So Drew Meredith from Water Partners Get in touch with him A financial planner based out of Melbourne But serves people all over the country So that's pretty cool um, Drew, mate, as always Thanks for taking the time out to catch up with me Thank you, Owen
1: Good to see you again